Brothers and sisters in our risen Lord Jesus, how can I be sure? How can I be sure that when God looks at a sinful human being like me, that he's going to react with grace and not with crushing condemnation? How can I be sure? How can I be sure that simply having faith in Jesus is really going to be enough to get me to heaven and that I don't have to do more things on my own to prove that I deserve to be there? How can I be sure? Because I'm going to be honest. There are a lot of people in this world who are smarter than me, just period. But there's a lot of people in this world smarter than me that have come to very different conclusions and have interpreted the Bible very different ways, ways that say, I maybe won't be in heaven unless I work a lot harder and do a lot more and better things. People have come to some very different conclusions about just what it takes to please God. So how can I be sure that grace is enough? The answer to that question from God is the verses of our sermon text today. How can I be sure? Well, God says this is how and this is why. So the verses for our sermon today, they're written by the Apostle Paul. I'm guessing you're familiar, perhaps, with the Apostle Paul. He's a key figure in the early church. And Paul's story is that he had been a persecutor of the Christians, a very successful persecutor of the Christians, until he switched. He saw the risen Jesus, and he switched sides and became a Christian missionary. And what Paul does in these verses is he shares, in a nutshell, the key truths on which his faith is founded. He shares, these are the core things that defined his life, these were the things that he was ultimately willing to die for. And these were the things he focused all his time on sharing with more and more people, the key truths of the Christian faith. And Paul starts our text this way. He says, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you already received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to this word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So Paul says, these are the core truths, the things about the Christian faith that you absolutely need to know. This is what it's all about. And he goes on like this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. These are the core truths of the Christian faith. You notice what's missing in these core truths? There is not anything in here about what I am supposed to do for God, and how I am supposed to live, and how I better prove that I'm really a good person if I'm going to make it into heaven someday. There's nothing about what I do. These core truths of Christianity are all about what Jesus has done for me, what Jesus has done for all of us. So let's break down these core truths and look at them one at a time. Core truth number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, the idea of a savior who was going to die for us, this didn't start with Jesus. This concept was sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. And going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you remember how God phrased that first gospel promise? He said a savior is gonna come and he's going to crush the serpent's head. But what's going to happen to the Savior? 
He'll be struck in his heel. He will be wounded. He will be hurt. Fast forward to Moses and the Old Testament Israelites. When God gave them his laws, he gave them this whole worship system. And what was the main point of the Old Testament worship system? It was sacrifice, right? It was the concept of someone else paying the price, taking the punishment for your sins, even dying in your place. And then in the time of the prophets, God spoke about the coming Savior through the prophet Isaiah. And he said things like this. He is going to be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace is going to be upon him. By his wounds, we will be healed. So the whole Old Testament is about this concept, the idea of a Savior who's coming, who's going to suffer and die, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, for the sins of us. Core truth number one, Christ died for our sins, and this was according to the scriptures. This was the plan going all the way back. Then, core truth number two, Christ was buried. And this is important. Paul lists this for a reason. Maybe it seems like a little tiny detail, but it's important that we understand Jesus didn't get crucified, so hung on the cross for a while, and then taken off the cross while he was still living, and put in somebody's back room, and they opened up the window and gave him plenty of air, and his wounds were able to heal, and he was able to recover. This is not what happened. There is no doubt at all about what took place. Jesus was absolutely certifiably dead, killed by expert Roman soldiers who stabbed him with a spear to make sure, and there were plenty of people there watching who saw it. And then Jesus was absolutely certifiably buried by specific people whose names are listed in Scripture, and he was put in the tomb of a specific man named Joseph of Arimathea who's listed in Scripture. We know whose grave he was in. There's no grave confusion about where he was buried. And then finally, Jesus' grave was absolutely certifiably made secure with a big stone that would have taken multiple men to move, with a Roman seal that no one would have dared tamper with, and most importantly, with a squad of armed soldiers. Christ was buried. And then, core truth number three, Christ was raised on the third day, also according to the scriptures. We heard last week and we heard again this week about this amazing story where people are coming to the grave and it's open and Jesus has risen. And we talked about how Jesus predicted that he would rise. But Jesus wasn't the only one who predicted that he would rise. The entire Old Testament, again, focused on the idea of a Savior who would rise from death. To give you a few examples, here's just a couple verses from Psalm 16. It says, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your faithful one see decay. You will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Or, for another example, consider these words from Isaiah 53. We heard all about, he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. The very next verses say, he will be cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he will be punished. Assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. After he has suffered, 
he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Jesus did not come up with resurrection from the dead. Throughout the whole Old Testament, God was already talking about resurrection from the dead, a Savior who would not only defeat sin, but would also conquer death once and for all. It was promised, it was prophesied, and then on Easter, Jesus did it. And this brings us to, I guess, the fourth and final core truth here, which is the listing of witnesses. Listen to how Paul lines it up. He says, after being raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, Jesus appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, Easter night. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep, that is, died. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother who had been skeptical up until this point. He's not skeptical anymore when he sees Jesus rise from the dead. Then he appeared to all the apostles again. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul's conversion, his birth into Christianity was a little bit different because he was a persecutor of Christians and because it happened even after Jesus had ascended into heaven. He came back one more time to get Paul and call him into his ministry. But Paul gives this list of witnesses, and most of the people on this list were still living at the time Paul wrote this. His readers could go check up on it. In fact, they could talk to hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, all who could testify that they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven. Why does Paul line it up like this? Why does Paul include all these names and details? Well, it's for the same reason that John wrote our gospel lesson the way he did. Remember we heard about everybody saw Jesus but Thomas? And then Jesus appeared again just for the benefit of Thomas and showed him the nail wounds and said, Stop doubting and believe. Here's what John wrote at the end of that chapter. We heard it before. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So these words, John's words and now Paul's words, they are written so that you may believe, so that you may be absolutely confident about the core truths of Christianity. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And Jesus was absolutely certifiably dead and buried and locked in a tomb. And then Jesus rose from the dead, amazing as it sounds, and he appeared to a whole bunch of people a whole bunch of times so there could be no doubt as to what had happened. Even for people like Thomas, who doubted, and Jesus specifically appeared to him. These are the core truths of Christianity. And the point of it all is that you are saved by grace. And your sins have been forgiven. And through Jesus, God does look at you through a lens of love and grace and not crushing condemnation. And through Jesus, you will rise and get to live forever in heaven. These words are written so that you may know, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, your Savior. Okay, but what about this, says the imaginary skeptical person that I'm thinking of, and maybe my own skeptical heart says it. What about this? All this stuff happened 2,000 years ago. That's a really long time. As you read these 
core truths of Christianity, about your salvation, how do you know that these were the original truths? The ones that were taught by Jesus and embraced by his disciples. How do you know that somebody didn't maybe come in centuries later and put their own spin on things and come up with this idea that you're saved by grace alone? How do you know that what you're reading in your Bible is the original beliefs? Uh, who knows what could have happened over years to all these documents being hand-copied? You ever heard that? You ever thought that? You start to kind of doubt your Bible? Like, it was a really long time ago. It is really old. Well, anybody that has taken our Bible Basics class might be familiar with or remember a handout that we go through on manuscript evidence for the New Testament. And the point of that handout is that we have so many copies and so many old copies of these New Testament books housed in separate libraries that you can look at them all and compare them all, and scholars do this, and they can easily rule out any differences or errors and very quickly can construct this is what those original texts said. It's really not possible that someone could have gone back and, and, and changed the Bible because there wasn't just one Bible. There's hundreds and hundreds of separate documents housed separately. Someone would have had to go change all of them. So we know this. We can be very confident in the text of the Bible, and specifically the text of the New Testament. The words that you read in your Bible, by and large, are the exact words, maybe give or take a few typos, the exact words that the apostles wrote. The only difference is they're in English, and they've had to be translated from Greek. But we have a very high degree of confidence in the New Testament scriptures. These verses, however, are different. These verses are special. 1 Corinthians is one of the first New Testament books. It's written very early. Paul wrote this probably 20, 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, how does Paul start this crucial section? He says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, as Paul lists those core truths of Christianity that we just read, he is not composing them. He is quoting them. These very key verses, verse 3 through 5 of this chapter, they appear to be an early creed, an early statement of faith. Kind of like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, right? Where we recite these things that Christians have been reciting for thousands of years. But the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, were written centuries after Jesus. This creed is believed to be the first one. The first creed that Christians ever made. Paul's writing it down 20 to 30 years after Jesus, but it first was being memorized and recited and passed on very, very soon after Jesus' resurrection, while all of the apostles were still living, before any major false teachings had crept into the church. This very original creed of these few verses summarizes the heartbeat of Christianity at the very beginning. These were the words Christian parents taught their kids at a time when it was incredibly dangerous to be a Christian. These were the words that martyrs whispered to themselves moments before being executed, thrown to the lions for their faith. These were the words that faithful elderly Christians held onto in their dying minutes. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. These things happened. I know, we know that these things happened. Our faith is not in vain. 
So these are the core truths of early Christianity going all the way back. And again, they all revolve around not how you're supposed to live or what kind of a person you're supposed to be. They're all about what our Savior Jesus has done. He died to rescue us from sin. He rose to rescue us from death. He appeared to a ton of people to make our victory absolutely crystal clear. The heartbeat of early Christianity is all about grace, full and free forgiveness, flowing down from God in heaven through our Savior Jesus and right down to you and me. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think of your Christian faith with that kind of a rock-solid, grace-filled confidence? Maybe there's times when we don't. I think there's times when I don't. Perhaps there's times for all of us when, for example, let's say we get so hung up on this one particular sin that we're struggling with or that we feel guilty about, we get so hung up on this one sin that we begin to doubt that God would really love us, that God would really forgive us, that God would really want a broken, flawed, selfish person like me. We get hung up on our sin. Or maybe we get hung up on death and how final it seems to be. Let's say, like, death takes away one of our loved ones and we see their dead body at their funeral and we know that they're not coming back and we start to doubt that God could really do it, that God could really raise them from the dead, that God could really raise us from the dead. It just seems impossible. And so we don't always think of our faith with this rock-solid, grace-filled confidence. And that is why God gives us these verses today, to remind us that full and free forgiveness of sins, that complete physical victory over death eventually at the last day, this is not side teachings of Christianity. This is the entire point of Christianity. This is what Old Testament Jews like Abraham and David were waiting for. This is what Jesus was constantly talking about. And this is what motivated Paul's entire Christian life. We talked about Paul. He was a persecutor of Christians. And as a persecutor of Christians, he was incredibly successful. He was very popular. He was very wealthy. He had pretty much everything you could possibly want in terms of popularity, career success, things for this world. And yet when Jesus appeared to him, Paul realized that Jesus had something even more valuable than anything else. It was grace. It was forgiveness from God for free. And so this is what Paul says as he continues in his line of thought. He says, he was abnormally born. He's not like the other appearances. God appeared to him even though he was an enemy. I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Paul talked about this over and over in his letters. A different time he wrote to his friend Timothy. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Full and free forgiveness of our sins is not a side teaching of Christianity. 
is the entire point of Christianity. Likewise, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and our own coming resurrection from the dead one day, not just our soul going to be with God in the spiritual realm, but our body actually rising, that is not a side teaching of Christianity. This is the entire point of Christianity. And that's why we're studying this chapter. First, First Corinthians 15 is often called the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. Because not only does it talk a whole bunch about Christ's resurrection at Easter, it also talks a whole bunch about our coming resurrection on the last day. Our physical resurrection from our grave. And these are huge topics. These are topics so beautiful and transformative that they're almost hard to believe. But in this chapter, the voice of God's Holy Spirit speaks to us with clarity and fills us with confidence and in these ancient words of faith takes our doubts away. In this chapter, God assures us he really does love us and view us with grace. Our sins really have been forgiven. All of them. And one day, we too really will rise. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in your risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.